We'll be looking at a collection of different texts this morning. You can find those in the handout in your bulletin. I'm going to be reading Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, if, if you'd like to turn there. This is Luke 24, 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, when they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning to the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women who with them or who with them told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, consider the value of our souls this morning, God, I pray that you give us wisdom. Father, I pray that you help us see Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What? is your greatest enemy or who is your greatest enemy if you know who your greatest enemy is or if you know what your greatest enemy is you're going to know something about the purpose of your life now there's something we all have in common in this room it's a fact Everyone in this room is here today, and you're in the process of dying physically. Everybody is dying. Did you know that health is a mirage? It seems like something real. It looks real. But as time goes by, that vision of health and life begins to fade away and something comes into clear focus and it's death. It's true. You're dying. I'm dying. The secular scientific world says that death is natural. Yet... Everyone is trying to avoid it. It's natural. You know, when you get hungry, you eat, right? It's natural. And the scientific secular world says death is natural. It's just a part of life. But here's my question. Why is it that when you go to a funeral of a loved one, Everything about you, inside of you, says, this is not right. It's not supposed to be that way. Nobody feels, they may say it to try to make themselves feel better, but deep down inside, nobody says at a funeral of their lost loved one, it's natural. It's no big deal. Nobody does that. You may try to ignore it, and you do. You may try to keep yourself busy and keep yourself from going to nursing homes or funerals or children hospitals, 
because you don't want to face reality, yet, even as we try our best to avoid it, and I, I'll, I'll prove it to you, if someone dies in a car accident that's about your age, I know the questions that you're going to ask. You're either going to ask it verbally or you're going to think it in your mind. You're going to say, were they wearing a seatbelt? Were they drinking? Were they speeding? Why do we do that? Why is it universal that without thinking, we ask questions like that? I'm going to argue that the reason why you and I do that is what's become natural is we want to avoid the reality that is the reality. That you and I are going to die. You may get rid of the wrinkles for a little while, but they'll come back and you'll die. We wonder if they're wearing a seatbelt because we think, well, I'm smarter than that. I'm going to avoid that accident or I don't drink, or I drive the speed limit. It's a way of making us feel as though death really isn't going to get us, but unfortunately, death is not that easy to ditch. It follows you wherever you go, and it will haunt you because it's reality. It's going to happen in your life. Young people, listen to me. You know how many young people died yesterday in this world, your same age? All of us are dying. You do not have health in a sense that you can tell your soul, peace, peace. In fact, the wisest man other than Christ that ever walked the face of the earth was King Solomon. God gave him the gift of wisdom, and he wrote a long sermon. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And the wisest man on earth who tried finding meaning in life said this about life apart from God. Here's, in fact, here's what Max Roglin, who wrote the notes in the ESV study Bible, in the intro to this book, he said, Solomon looked back and saw the futility and vanity of chasing after even good things in this life are good things this life can offer, including wisdom, work, pleasure, and wealth. Even if such things are satisfying for a time, death is certain to end this satisfaction. One of the most miserable people in the world to be might be Bill Gates. You know why? Because Bill Gates is dying. He has all this wealth, and yet at the end of it, he's dying. I just want to give you a little flavor of Ecclesiastes. Here's what Solomon said. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. You know, maybe life's all about the pleasure we can get. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly until until I might see what is good for the children of man to do during the few days of life. You see, here's what Solomon did with his life. He had all the money he ever wanted. He had all the women he ever wanted. He had all of everything the world chases after. And he says it's vanity. In verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 2, he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. He built a kingdom beyond what we can imagine and a temple beyond what we can imagine. And he says, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered 
all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and was striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. After chasing after all that, he says, vanity. And then in chapter 3, he says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but, are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so d- dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over beasts, for all is vanity. Here's what he realized. <laughs> that cow's going to die, and I'm going to die. In Ecclesiastes 9.3, he says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. You know, we might think, oh, the world's so exciting. Look at all the different things people are doing. And he says, it's all the same. Here's what he says about it. The hearts of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. And in Ecclesiastes 12.13, he says, the, the end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole of the duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He says towards the end of his sermon, he says, when you're young, remember the Lord because tough days are coming. It's a fact. They're coming. Here's what he's saying. If you don't put the Lord under your feet as the foundation and you put all these other things that everyone else chases after, your day's coming. And when it comes, if you're not standing on the Lord, your life is going to be vanity. There's going to be nothing to stand on. If you build your life on top of your children, they're going to disappoint you. If you build your life on top of your wife as she's going to be the thing that makes you happy, you're going to be disappointed. If you build your life off your business where you're going to make all sorts of money, Jesus says, what if you gain the whole world? and forfeit your soul? What value do you put on your soul? So what's our hope? Why is the world the way it is? If we can all agree on one thing, we should all be able to agree that we're all dying. How did we get here? In order to understand that, we must first understand how it was supposed to be. Now, let me tell you something. If God didn't tell us who we are, we wouldn't know who we are. We would be chasing what the secular scientists are chasing, thinking we're just chemicals, reacting. You know, we all cry at funerals for some reason, but we laugh and... but. If God doesn't tell us who we are and why things are the way they are, then we would never know. And what we see is that God created man, male and female, in his own image. Now get this. Man was made to glorify God by loving him and others by submitting to his word as vice regents over his creation. He created Adam and Eve to rule over creation, to reflect his rule and his glory. All the earth was to be in subjection under to Adam and Eve's feet. And they were to rule according to God's word. And you all know what happened The snake comes into the garden. A creature, Satan, is speaking through the serpent and tells them 
to doubt God's Word. Tells them, you will not surely die if you eat from that tree. And Adam and Eve fail in what God created man and woman to do, and that is to rule over creation. The snake gained rule over them. They failed to glorify God and reflect his father, but instead they begin to reflect the rebellion of Satan himself and the serpent. And then we are told, if you go to church here, you've heard the story so many times, there's a promise right after Adam and Eve sin that there's going to be one born of a woman who's going to crush the snake's head and reverse this curse that God has put on the earth. The reason why we're all dying is because God loves you. You say, well, what do you mean by that? God is, when you're at a funeral, when you see cancer, when you see a hurricane, when you see a tornado, this is God's flashing red light saying, it's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to be like this. Your heart is telling you this at the funeral. And it's God's warning that we look for the Savior, that we look for the one who can reverse all this wrong that has happened. Here's the conclusion of who we are as men and women fallen in Adam. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I know you're probably thinking, this is not a very encouraging Easter message. But in order for you to be encouraged, you have to be utterly broken. If you don't see your true enemy, you won't look for a savior. It's just a fact. Here's your enemies. Satan, the deceiver that deceived Adam and Eve. He deceived them into sinning. And God said if they ate of that tree, if they didn't listen to his word, if they sinned, they would surely die. So Satan, sin, and the ultimate enemy, death, is our biggest enemies. Now, you might come in here and think, I, I don't think Satan's my enemy. I don't think sin's my enemy. I don't. Well, you can think that all day long, but that doesn't change reality. Think about why the world is the way it is. So, it's real simple this morning. We're going to see how Christ saves us from those three enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And we're going to look at four passages. Uh, we're not going to spend a ton of time in any one passage, but we're going to see where our hope comes from. And then you're going to have... Everyone here has to make a decision as to where they're going to place their hopes. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews 2. We're going to start in verse 5. Now the writer of the book of Hebrews, if you're going to take a theme out of the book, it's a book of warning. Warning believers not to leave their only hope. Not to walk away from their only hope, not to neglect such a great salvation. Hebrews 2, starting verse 5, and we're looking at how Christ destroys these three enemies. Here's what he says. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, so God gave this world to man, right? That this world will be subjected under man's feet, not angels' feet. It has been testified somewhere, and he quotes Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? 
You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Isn't that what God did with Adam and with Eve? He, he gave them as rulers over the whole world. And now in putting subjection, or everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. No, we see a chaotic world that seems out of control. At times, it seems like it's without hope. So right now, we can't see man ruling over this world, glorifying God, the way God meant it to be. We can't see that, but there is something you can see. Look at verse 9. But we see him, now this is speaking of Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Christ, the Son of God, God himself, for a little while made lower than the angels, that's his incarnation, becoming man, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by grace he might taste death for everyone. So God in his plan sent his son to become a man to taste death for everyone. Everyone that would have him. Some people want to taste death for themselves. Those who don't receive Christ, but God in his love had one plan to save fallen humanity, and it was to send his son. And look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was right for God to do it this way. The first Adam screwed up. The first Adam sinned, and the whole human race fell with Adam. But God sends the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and he suffers throughout his whole life, and always responds perfectly. He never sins. He doesn't fall to Satan's temptations. It was fitting that in bringing many sons to glory, he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here's the thing. The cost, the payment to be made, the penalty of sin is death. If you're going to have your fine paid, somebody's got to die on your behalf. And you can die on your behalf, but the cost of that, your sin against an eternal God, is eternal judgment in hell. You say, well, that sounds harsh. Well, that's just. You don't know who you sinned against. You sinned against eternal glory. The only payment that can be made that brings justice is a payment of equal worth, and you can't offer it up. You need a substitute that has eternal value, and that person is Jesus Christ. And I want you to be amazed at this. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus he cleans us up through his death. And those who are sanctified, that's you and I. We're cleaned up. In him, by pure grace, all have one source. And that's God the Father. So if we're connected to the sanctifier, we both have the same Father. And so he says, that's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you, or tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. 
And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So Jesus became like you and I to make us brothers with him and children of God. You can't clean yourself up, and God knew that. So he sent Christ, who lived the life you and I could never live, and he came as a substitute to take your place so that when you trust in him by faith, you become his brother and his father becomes your father. Now look at what he says. He partook of the same things. He became a real man that through death he might destroy. Now you're going to see Satan destroyed. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So the reason why Christmas happened, Jesus took on flesh, was so he could die. That's the only way payment for our sins can be made. And to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, the devil has the power of death here in that he tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and the punishment for sin is death. And what Satan does is he goes around, he tempts people to sin, and then as soon as they sin, he says, look at this. Look how rotten you are. Look at what you did. Look, you're guilty. Therefore, live your whole life trembling because death is at the end of the road. You see? Everybody is enslaved to the fear of death because of sin. And Satan accuses us of sin. But Jesus took on flesh and he died so that the devil couldn't do that anymore. Look at verse 16. For surely it's not the angels he helps. You think Jesus might come for the fallen angels, but he comes for the most rebellious, those created in the image of God. He comes for those who weren't worthy. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like one of his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, what priests did is they sacrificed, made sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. They represented the people. <clears throat> so throughout the whole Old Testament, you have one priest after another offering for the sins of Israel. But Jesus took on flesh. Not so he could take a lamb and offer it up. He became the lamb. He came to be the faithful high priest to make propitiation for your sin. Now, that's a weird word we don't use anymore, but it's an important word. Propitiation is the one who makes the payment. Because of sin, God's wrath stands above our head because God's just. He can't bat an eye at sin like it's no big deal. He can't shuffle it under the rug. So we all have, if you can imagine, every sin you commit, it's like more wrath that gets put on your head that God must punish because he is just. But Jesus came so that he could push you out of the way and get under that wrath and absorb it up into himself. He's the propitiation. He's the wrath absorber so that you and I can have our sins forgiven. And if our sins are forgiven, we can know that death is actually not at the end of the road, but life is at the end of the road. And we know that Christ, he claimed to be able to take away the sins of the world. 
He proved it many different times through miracles. He told a paralytic man that his faith has healed him. Who, who, can, who can forgive sins but God himself? And then he says, all right, what's harder, for me to say your sins are forgiven or to make him walk? He's been paralyzed his whole life. So you can know I can have the authority to forgive sin. Get up and walk, and he gets up and walks. Jesus says this is why he came. And if he would have remained dead, he would have just been another fool claiming to be somebody. But he rose from the dead. He rose. And I just want to point you to the last verse in this Hebrew text, verse 18. He says, he became the propitiation, or to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he, he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. I love this. He not only pays for your sin, he actually helps you in your temptation as you're fighting sin as a Christian. He comes alongside, it gets really practical. Now I want to go to the next text. So we saw from Hebrews how Jesus defeats Satan, sin, and death. Now I want to take you to Colossians. It's almost as if, and I'm just telling you, you're just only getting the little look at the beauty of Christ. It's like taking a diamond and you you hold it up to the light and you twist it a little bit. It has a different glow. I'm giving you four sides to look at, but there's so many more. In Colossians 2, verse 6, here's what's going on. You have a brand new church and... People are trusting Christ, but they're starting to be led astray into all these different rituals, new moon festivals. Uh, you, know, you can eat this food. You can't eat that food. They're, they're, they're chasing. It's like they have Jesus, but they want to add on to him all these other teachings. And Paul's trying to help them see how crazy this is. In verse 6, he says, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. You, you hear those words? Rooted, built up, established, standing on this foundation. just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now get this, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. If somebody says, well, Jesus was just a, you know, a brother to our, our was just another angel. He's a good angel. Satan's a bad angel. Wrong. He's God. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, uh, according to verse 9. And look at the shocker of verse 10. And you've been filled in Him. Now let me ask you something. If Jesus is the fullness of deity, and when you trusted in Him, you were connected to His life, and so his fullness becomes your fullness. How stupid would it be to go try to add something else onto him? It doesn't make sense. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him, who is the head, now get this, of all rule and authority. Ah, that's what Adam was supposed to be doing. But now Jesus is the man who is ruling, and you're connected to his leadership. This Colossian church is worried about all these uh, demonic forces, and, and they're trying to figure out how to get the right vision to cast them out. And he's saying, don't you know? You've been filled with the one who's in authority over all this. And then he says in verse 11, 
In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now here's what he says. It's a different type of circumcision. It's not one made with hands. It's one where the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and he begins to change what you desire on the inside where before you were enslaved to sin and now you don't have to be. You can still go sin and Christians do, but they don't have to. Because now God has circumcised them from the inside. He makes them born again. It's a new creation from within. And then he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. So here you see death being destroyed in Christ in a a baptismal service when the person is put under the water That represents a person in union to Christ's death. Jesus died your death for you. And when you go under the water, it's as if you go under, you die under the wrath of God with Christ. And when you come out of the water, you're not only linked to his death, you don't have to go pay for eternity under the wrath of God in hell. You're His death is your death, but his resurrection is your resurrection. So that if Jesus is raised from the dead, that we also will be raised from the dead. That's why any burial service I ever do, and the family standing there crying, the one thing I remind them is this. If you were going to go look at the tomb of Jesus... Is this the place where he was buried? Or is this the place he was raised? You see, when a Christian dies, we know there's going to be a resurrection unto life. These morbid cemeteries, we may think of them that way, yet these are going to be resurrection plots where just as Christ was raised, we also will be raised. Now, everyone's going to be raised, Christian or not. Non-Christians are raised to a resurrection unto death. So they die the first time, but then they're going to the second death, which is being cast out of the presence of God in his joy into the lake of fire, into hell, where Satan will be cast in the end. But it's amazing, having been buried with him in baptism. You're not saved by your baptism. It's a representation of when you trust in Christ, you're united to him. Uh, And then he says, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you were just a slave to sin. God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, I know we're getting to the end of my sermon, but you got to hear this. Listen to this. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is unbelievable. Here's the picture. God knows everything. He, he not only knows everything you've ever done, he knows everything you've ever thought. And we're not only judged according to our deeds, but our thoughts. So you have a record of debt against you that's bigger than what you can imagine. The Bible describes sin as falling short of the glory of God, which means if you eat a candy bar without giving thanks to God, you're not giving him glory, you're sinning. We sin all the time. But for those who trust in Christ, that record of debt is nailed to the cross so that it's paid in full. And when he did that, look how Satan is destroyed according to this text. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's demons and and Satan, and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing, I can't say the word right now, over them in Christ. You see, Satan's weapon against you and I 
is the weapon of accusation. Look, you're a sinner. But when your debt is paid in Christ, what weapon does he have? Oh, man. Looks like we're going to skip 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to go to Revelation 12, verse 7. I don't know if there's any Star Wars fans here. I know for me, I'm not a Star Wars fan. I kind of think, oh, come on, get, get real. Star Wars, well, then I read my Bible and find out there's actual Star Wars in, in the Bible. So I guess they didn't come up with this out of nowhere. But here we get to see a battle that goes on in heaven right before the great tribulation, right before the very end, we get to see a battle between God's angels and Satan's demons. Paul says we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places, up in the heavens, in the atmosphere, in space. And here's what we read in verse 7. Now a war arose in heaven, and Michael, so whenever Michael shows up, Michael the archangel, he shows up for battle. When Gabriel shows up, he's bringing a message from God. Now a a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon has been revealed as Satan in the text immediately previous to this. And you can see how his tail sweeps a third of uh, the fallen angels down with him. We don't have time to look at that. That's in the first six verses. But the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there is no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels thrown down with him. So I think this is at the time of the great tribulation. I think this is at the time when no longer is Satan able to go before the throne of God and accuse the saints. He's thrown down. And things are going to get really tough on the earth. And verse 10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power of the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Now the word, the name Satan means accuser. He's the accuser of the brothers. He says, look, they're sinful. He tempts to sin. And then he accuses. But he's been thrown down now, who accuses them day and night before our God. I don't know if you know this, uh, but Satan has never been to hell yet. In fact, he goes to, he goes from the earth up to the heavens and he spends day and night before the throne of God making accusations against the saints. But there's going to be a day that we're looking forward to in the future where that will end. But look at this. Look at the end of verse 10. Who accuses them day and night. He accuses the brothers, and they have conquered him. Now, how can we conquer the devil? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Now, here's the thing. If you're trusting in Christ, your sin is paid for. And so when Satan comes to you and accuses you, you can point to the cross and say, my debt's been paid. But then he says, yeah, but I'm going to kill you. If you keep speaking that testimony of Christ, I'm going to kill you. But then they say, it says they love not their life unto death. These are people who stood in the face of persecution and willingly died 
because they knew they have a resurrection. They knew that just as Christ was raised, they would be raised. And as Christians, when we point to the cross and say our sins are forgiven, but then we're afraid of persecution and we're not willing to pay the price, we put the weapon back in Satan's hand in a sense because he still has us afraid of death. But we don't need to be afraid of death because death has been conquered when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. You realize that? The reason why Easter is an absolute celebration is because your biggest enemy was destroyed in the person of Christ. Jesus paid the price for your sins, and he rose from the dead to prove that he defeated even death. And the way you yourself are going to be saved is not by becoming good enough, not by coming to church and earning moral points, but by realizing you could never be good enough, but your life can be connected to Christ's life by faith. He becomes your merciful high priest who gives himself for you, takes your place. He came as a substitution. And I want to leave you with the question, what will you do? in light of reality. The Bible can be confusing sometimes, but it can be really simple too. Here's the fact of all humanity. Here's reality. Hebrews 9.27 And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. That's a fact. You're going to die, and you're going to face God. So that, though, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. The first time Jesus came, he didn't come to judge the world, but he came to be the substitute, the payment for your sins, to bear the sins of many. He'll appear a second time not to deal with sin, he's already made that payment, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, if you know who your greatest enemies are and you really believe it, you're eagerly waiting for him. He's the most valuable thing in your life. You see, Jesus doesn't come back and say, do you get the test right? He doesn't ask you, how do you get to heaven? And then you say, Jesus, and he lets you in. He's coming back for those who love him and who are eagerly waiting for him. That's who he's coming for. John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 1.9 says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Isn't that amazing? Christ created you. He created the whole world, and the majority of the world ignores him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, brothers of Christ, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. A man who lived probably five, 6,000 years ago named Job, at the end of his life, at the end of great suffering, here's what he said, and he got, he got his wish. He says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen they were engraved in the rock forever. What does he want people to know? For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I'll see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. He knew he was dying, but he knew that he was going to stand in his flesh with God and see him. And here's how that miracle happens. 
Here's what we'll close with. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. He's talking about how this is going to happen. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable. Those who have already died trusting Christ, when Christ comes down the second time, they'll raise up out of the grave. And those who are on this earth, in a twinkling of an eye, their earthly bodies will be turned into spiritual bodies that have real flesh, but they'll last forever. They'll never get sick. For the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on more immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then, and that's the key word, shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that your labor is not in vain because you're going to live forever. See, if you just die and it's over, everything you do is vain. But if you're going to be raised... Nothing you do will be in vain. The saying, where, O death, is your sting? Right now, we feel the sting of death. We stand at the graves of our loved ones, and we weep. We feel it. But then, on that day, when when we're resurrected, we'll see the culmination of the victory. Jesus won with the mighty punch at the cross and the resurrection, our victory, sure, but we're waiting for the sting of death to go. We're waiting for the day when Christ comes. That's why his saints are eagerly waiting for him for this day. My prayer is that you would value your soul, that you would listen to Solomon, that it'll be richer than you've ever been, that it'll had more sexual pleasure than you'll ever have. He says it's all worthless if you don't have God, if you don't have resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I pray that all of us would find our hope in Christ, that we would see how he destroyed the devil, sin, and death. God, I pray you give us faith to believe your word. In Jesus' name, amen.